0: Well, look, uh, welcome to all of you over in the venue. Glad you guys are are with us. Thank you for all of you that serve over there to make that a special place. And again, if you're watching online, we are are grateful that you're with us. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Romans chapter 3. Okay, Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, all of the verses, I think, are inside your program. They'll come up on the Jumbotrons, they'll even come up on your computer screens at home. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, all you have to do is go into the altar room when we're done or over in the venue, go into the altar room and we would love to give you a a Bible, uh, your own copy of the the Word of God. Now, uh, before I get into it, we we, uh, each week do what we call a not ashamed video. And uh, it's where we get to uh, meet somebody in our church and we take a, you know, a little piece of their life and put it together and we all get to enter in and how the Lord is working in their life. And this week's, it's kind of special, it's one of our own pastors and it's Scott Stubbart. So check out the Jumbotrons.
1: I grew up in a Christian family. It's been a true blessing to be raised in a Christian home. Somewhere along the lines between five, six, nine years old, I started to create a belief, a structure in my brain, not a religious belief, but an agreement with the world that basically I was a bad and unworthy person. I had um, zero self-esteem, didn't think I was smart enough, didn't think I was good enough, and didn't think I was worthy of anything. I would have to perform in order for people to love me. So if I was spiritual enough, if I memorized enough scripture, if I was funny enough, then people would accept me. I found a lot of rejection because there was a lot of times by my performance that I, I couldn't measure up. I had to come to a place where I would meet my own needs. And what was my greatest need? Well, my greatest need was sex. My greatest need was pornography. It ruled my life, I got tired of fighting what they call every man's battle. But it wasn't a battle to me. I thought maybe if I get married, maybe if I become a pastor, maybe if I do whatever, then that will solve my issues, that will solve my problems. But the reality is, I was in bondage. So after I got married to my wonderful wife, Christine, we moved up to Soldotna, Alaska and I was a youth pastor, and I remember our firewall was down, and I took that moment to go online. And it wasn't 24 hours I got a call from my senior pastor, and he asked me to come into the church. So I went down and I talked to him, and I remember him sharing with me what he had found. And he told me I had to go home and tell my wife. And I hated it. I went home and I talked to my wife and I shared with her what I had done. And I knew at that moment, my life was in chaos and I needed help. I couldn't hide it anymore. The guilt and the shame was too great. I remember coming back to Modesto and going to celebrate recovery for my first time. I remember my first night walking in late and and hoping no one would see me and I sat down across the room in the back row and I was freaked out. I was scared. I remember sitting there sharing that I was a sex addict and not being met with looks that I was a pervert, or that I was weird, or they were disgusted with me, but I was met with looks of compassion. And it wasn't very long after attending Celebrate Recovery that we finally started a sexual addiction group, but I remember there were four of us sitting in a room and we had no clue what to do. The fact that Celebrate Recovery was gospel driven, that it is focused on the Word of God, and because we applied the Word of God to our life, we were able to start to transform. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And as God started to transform my mind, my belief system went from focusing and then thinking that I was unworthy to believing that I was worthy. Not by my own volition, but by God. Jesus Christ makes me worthy. Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and he died on the cross for your sins. That group has gone from four to over 50 men For some weird reason, the church has decided to hire me as a pastor, an associate pastor of recovery and counseling, a sex addict that would be willing to step foot in the church and be able to help men who are struggling, whether it be pornography, whether it be sexual addiction, to sit down one-on-one with them and help talk with them and help them find God's forgiveness in their life. I am Scott Stubbert, and I am a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, and I am not ashamed of the gospel. Yeah.
0: If you're visiting with us, this is a church that understands that uh, everybody in this room is broken deeply broken by sin. You may not be able to relate to Scott's story, but we can all relate to the fact that we're all broken. And that's the story of the scriptures. That from Genesis chapter three on is the story of humanity broken by sin. But there's also the story of a God who loved us, who came to redeem us from whatever the brokenness was, whatever the thing is that we are dealing with. And I don't know if you've ever been down here on a Tuesday night, but it is an incredible place. 500 plus people who who understand that it's not okay to live in sin. It's not okay. They understand that God redeemed them to be salt and light. It's not okay to be stuck in sin, and they're here saying, God, I, I, I just want your help. God, I want to get into your word. They get together in small groups of men and women, and it might be the drugs that they're battling. It, it might be the pornography. It might be the anger. I don't know what it is, but they're there together together to confess their sins to each other and hold each other accountable, pray for each other. It's a great, great, great ministry. Well, let's get into our, our message here for today. Humans uh, like to think that they're basically good, that at the core of their being is, is goodness. And secular psychology and godless preachers, and there's lots of them out there, and godless churches, and there are lots of those out there, have been used by the enemy to reinforce this idea that uh, mankind is basically good. But humans have one big problem, and it's that pesky little thing called guilt, It ruins this wonderful thought that humans have about themselves, that they're good. Ann Landers said this about guilt. She said, quote, one of the most painful, self-mutilating, time-consuming exercises in the human experience is guilt. It can ruin your day, or your week, or even your life, if you let it. It turns up like a bad penny when you do something dishonest, hurtful, tacky, selfish, or rotten. Never mind that it was the result of ignorance, stupidity, laziness, thoughtfulness, the weak flesh, or clay feet. You did wrong, and the guilt is killing you. Too bad. But be assured, the agony you feel is normal. Remember, guilt is a pollutant and we don't need any more of it in our world. And I thought that was really good. She tells us that guilt is normal, that guilt is a pollutant, that guilt is painful, and that we don't need any more of it. But the question she doesn't answer is, how do you get rid of it? You see, Though mankind tries to convince himself that he's good, he's always faced with the fact that he does evil, which produces guilt. He's always faced with the fact that he says evil, and then he's confronted with his guilt. He, he's always having to deal with the fact that he thinks evil. Forget whether he does it or not, or actually says it or not, he just thinks it. and That produces guilt. So good people do all kinds of things to rid themselves of the guilt they feel. They go to counseling, they turn to narcotics, they keep themselves busy at work or they you know, travel. They fill their lives full of sex and pornography. They play psychological games and they blame others for their guilt. They, they blame the church for their guilt. It's one of the reasons why the world is working so hard to get rid of the church, to get rid of what the church is to stand for, is because if you get rid of the church, if you get rid of what it stands for, the principles taught within here, then maybe I don't have to deal with the guilt that I feel in my life because of how I'm choosing to live it. People blame me for their guilt. Happens all the time, I get emails every week from people all over the world because of our internet uh, ministry. You made me feel guilty. Isn't God a God of love? And I watched your program or I came into the thing or I listened to it on the radio and man, you made me feel guilty. Some people even get to the point of taking their own lives to rid themselves of the guilt. Beloved, people so want to believe that they're good and therefore not have to face any judgment for being bad, which is what guilt reminds them of, that they're absolutely desperate to find a way to rid themselves of this horrible reminder that they're not good. But they just don't know how to do it. I heard the story uh, about a man that sent a $50 check to the IRS with a note attached to it that said this, quote, I'm sending you this check because I can't sleep at night because I was dishonest with my tax returns. P.S., if I can't sleep after sending it, I'll send you the balance. (laughs) Uh, Listen, you know why people, you and I, feel guilt? Because we're guilty. (laughs) That's why we feel guilt. And you know why we're guilty? Because we've all sinned. All of us. It's one of the things that we all have in common in here. We all feel guilt. Every one of us has felt guilt. Whether you believe in God or not, whether you believe in the the God of this Bible or not, whether you believe that this is God's word or not, you've all experienced guilt. And the reason why you've experienced guilt is because of sin. Sin. All the counseling or booze or travel or sex or blaming others won't purge a person of their guilt. Now, it might make you feel better for a season. There's no doubt about it. Put enough booze in your system, you might feel good for a little while. It may numb the feeling of the guilt for a while. I get it. But it's gonna rear its ugly head again. You can fill your life with sex and porn and all that kind of stuff, and it'll kind of mask the guilt for a while, but it's gonna rear its ugly head again. You, you can stay busy at work, you know, working, 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 traveling, going places, doing all kinds of stuff, and it might alleviate the feeling of guilt for a season, no doubt about it, but it will raise its ugly head again. Friends, the only way to rid yourself of guilt is to deal with the cause of guilt. And that's sin. This is why Paul spent the first three chapters of Rome in unpacking the thought that we're all sinners. Because if you don't understand the fact that you're a sinner, you'll never understand your need for the gospel, which is the only thing that can rid your life of the guilt. So for three chapters, for three months, basically, as we've walked through this book, all we've dealt with is this thing called sin. Paul is just hammering home an important uh, concept that all of us need to understand, sin. It's not a fun topic to talk about, that's why most churches don't wanna talk about it. But obviously it's an important one that we all need to understand. You see, the the Word of God is like an x-ray of the human soul, and it gives us the diagnosis that everybody is terminally ill. (laughs) We all stand guilty before God, which is why people don't want to read it. This is why people don't want to study it is because it's an x-ray, it tells you what you're like on the inside. You can put on all the fancy clothes you want on the outside, you can put on all the makeup that you want, you can put all the fancy jewelry on, and you may look good on the outside, but all the clothes and all the makeup and all the jewelry can't change what's on the inside. And what this book does is it gives us an x-ray into what's in here. Romans chapter 5 says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Genesis chapter 3 is such an important uh, moment in history, we, we all need to understand it. If you name the name of Christ, you need to understand Genesis chapter three. If you don't get Genesis chapter three, then you're not gonna understand much else in the Bible. Sin entered the world in Genesis three when Adam made the choice to blow God off. At that moment, it, it was just, it was, it was cataclysmic beyond anything we could understand. All of us have been impacted because of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. All of us are full of sin. The great prophet Isaiah said, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own ways. You see, Adam had a choice. Do I follow God's way or do I do my own thing? You made a choice, I'm gonna do my own thing. And the great prophet says, you know what? We're just like Adam. We've all gone astray. We've all decided to just do our own thing. We've all have been impacted with sin. And it's really important for you as a believer to, to really understand this truth that sin has messed you up badly and that you're totally helpless to do anything about it. So with this said, I want to get into our text for today. In our text, Paul uses a teaching method that was common with the Jewish rabbis. It was called a shiraz, and it literally means a stringing together of pearls, The rabbis would take a variety of verses from the Old Testament, and they'd put them together to present their message, much like a a topical sermon is today, which is exactly what Paul's doing in our text. In fact, one of the reasons why I like to teach topically is because of our text today. I like to go through books of the Bible. But Paul now is going to use a very topical method in the text that we're going to Uh, we're going to look at. Now, on many weekends, as we have gone through the first three chapters of Romans, I've asked you to imagine, if you could, that Paul is a, a great prosecuting attorney. I wanted you to imagine we're all in a courtroom, and Paul is the prosecuting attorney. He's laying out the case that all of us Are sinful. He's laying out all the exhibits, and he's gone through a whole lot of things to help us understand the fact that we are sinners, and the message today really is the great summation of his argument. This this is the the moment he's standing in front of the jury, and he's given his great summation of everything that he has said. So Romans chapter three, look at verse 10. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God, All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one, and that's Psalms 14. Their throats are open, grazed, their tongues practice deceit, that's Psalms 5. The poison of vipers is on their lips, that's Psalms 140. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, That's Psalms 10. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery, mark their way, and the way of peace they do not know. That's Isaiah 59. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's Psalms 36. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, by observing the Ten Commandments, by keeping the Ten Commandments. Rather, through the law, we became conscience of sin. This is a rich section of Scripture. And as I said, this is Paul's summation, if you will, of the first three chapters, And what he does here in these verses is he basically shares three things that prove without a doubt that everyone stands guilty before God. And the first one is this. Number one, mankind's character is evil and therefore it condemns him. Verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good. Not even one. Paul begins this string of pearls, if you will, by quoting Psalms 14, which the Jews would have known like the back of their hand. In fact, most Jews probably had Psalms 14 memorized. Paul says there's not one person who was right before God. Not one. Why? Because of sin. Paul says not one person understands the things of God. Why? Because of sin. Paul says there's not one person who seeks after God. Why? Because of sin. And then he ends with, there's not one person who does anything worthy before God. Not one. Why? Because of sin. Beloved, Paul makes it crystal clear that everybody is blown at Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, young, Old, black, white, Latino, Chinese, Democrat, Republican. there's not one person who is right before God. There's not one person who understands the things of God. There's not one person who seeks after God, and there's not one person who does anything worthy before God. I want you to think of the person that you know that's the kindest, most gentlest person you know, your grandmother. She's infected by sin. That little little granddaughter of yours, that little grandbaby, you call her, you know them, your little angel, infected by sin. Billy Graham, infected by sin. Dr. MacArthur, my favorite preacher, infected by sin. Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, John Calvin, every one of them infected by sin. Mother Teresa, infected with sin. The Pope, infected with sin. Mary, the mother of Jesus, infected with sin. Peter, James, Paul, all the uh, original apostles, all of them, sinners, infected with sin. Every human being has been infected with sin. Now, obviously, some people are better than others. I say it to you all the time. Sin has taken hold of some people to a greater degree and they they turn out to be a man like Hitler or Charlie Manson or Jeffrey Dahmer. I get it that sin has so gripped and put some people in such bondage that they're way more evil than you. But make no mistake about it, We're all bad. Sin has impacted all of our lives. Mankind is in total darkness as it relates to the things of God. And I want you to know, Christian, that this is a a critical biblical truth that you all need to understand. The total depravity of man. The idea that everybody is a slave to his or her own sin. Nobody seeks after God. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter six. Jesus says, no one can come to me. Nobody can become a Christian. Nobody can become a follower of Christ. Nobody becomes a a part of the, the church. Nobody becomes a part of the bride unless the father who sent me draws him. And the reason nobody can come to Jesus unless God intercedes and draws a person is because sin won't let you come to God. Sin is like the opposite ends of a magnet and God's one end of the magnet and you're the other and sin will not let you come to God. It's diametrically opposed to God. Jesus went on to say this in John chapter 15, you did not choose me, but I have chosen you. And the reason you didn't choose Jesus is because sin wouldn't let you choose Jesus. In other words, your, your sin wouldn't let you give your life to Jesus. Jesus. That's how powerful your sin is. You're not here today because you chose Him. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 19: For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. People are totally lost. Utterly lost. And if Jesus didn't come to find us, we'd still be lost at this moment. There'd be nobody in this building right now if Jesus hadn't came to seek us. This place would be empty. Every church would be empty if Jesus didn't come to seek us. Now, what's my point in in all of this? I want you to understand that it's God who's doing all the seeking. It's God who draws people to himself. It's God who's after a relationship, not mankind, not you. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, today I think I'm gonna go find God. Your sin won't let you do that. Your sin won't let you have a thought like that. Second Corinthians chapter four, we're given a, a pretty, pretty weighty piece of data. The God, and you'll notice that's a small g, of this age, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. All of us in this room at one time or another were unbelievers. Our eyes were blinded by the God of this age so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There was a moment in all of our lives when it was absolutely impossible for us to understand the gospel. But there's good news the one true living God is seeking after people. And he has the ability, he has the power to open the eyes of those who have been blinded by Satan and their sin. This is the beautiful thing about the gospel. Though people don't care about God, though people don't seek after God, though people are lost, God still cares about them. The reason you're sitting here today worshiping God is simply because he's the one who opened your eyes to the truth. It was all him. It had to be him because your sin wouldn't let you open your mind to the truth of the gospel. Years ago, um, Youth for Christ had an evangelistic campaign that was entitled, I Found It. Some of you are old enough in here to remember The campaign, you can go home and Google it if you'd like later. They had all these bumper stickers that were made that simply said, I found it, you know, that you'd put on your car. They had phrase, the the, the phrase, I found it, put on, you know, billboards and all of that. And the thought was that whenever somebody asked you, hey, what did you find? You would then answer, I found Jesus. But there was one big, huge problem with this campaign. And that was that God wasn't the one who was lost. We were. The campaign should have been called, he found me. Jesus didn't say, I came to earth to be found. He didn't say that because it would have been impossible because of your sin to find him. He said, I came to seek and to save those whose eyes have been blinded to the truth by Satan. That's why I came. I came to seek and to save you. You're lost, you. The shepherd's never been lost. It's always been the sheep, you and I, that were lost. Youth for Christ's hearts were in the right place. Their motives were right. It's just that their theology was off a little. Beloved, the Bible's crystal clear. There's not one person who seeks after the one true living God. And here's why. If he's true and living, that means he's supreme, Right? And that means he's to be honored and glorified and obeyed. And this doesn't appeal to the sin that people are enslaved to. Your your sin isn't interested in seeking after God and therefore having to submit to him. But your sin will allow you to seek after a false God, a God that will tolerate your sin, God, that will say it's okay to live however you want to live. Your, your flesh is okay with that. And Satan's made sure there are all kinds of preachers out there that will tell you all kinds of stuff. Oh, good. I mean, I can live this way. I can live in my sin. Yeah, you're fine. All kinds of churches look like this one. They got a choir like ours and chairs like this, got a cross out in front, even got a pulpit like this. We'll even have a Bible that looks like this. Your. Flesh, your sin will is like a heat-seeking missile, and it'll seek out those kinds of places. Today there are all kinds of phony gods out there, phony churches and phony pastors that'll tell you that you can do anything you want with your life, and God will never judge you. I mean, after all, he's a God of love, right? And because they never talk about sin and judgment, it gives people basically a license to sin, which only creates more guilt. That's what it does. Beloved, nobody's right before God, nobody understands the things of God, nobody seeks after God, and nobody does anything worthy before God. This is is the character of man, if you will, and it's the first exhibit in Paul's great summation. Number two, man's conduct is evil and therefore condemns him. Okay, Paul's going to uh, continue this string of pearls in verse 13. He says, their throats are open graves, their tongue practice deceits, and I told you that Psalms 5. The poison of vipers is on their lips, that's Psalms 140. Their mouths are full of cursing and, and bitterness, Psalms 10. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their way, and the way of peace they do not know. That's Psalms, or Isaiah 59. Now, Paul mentions two specific things here about man's conduct that condemns them the first one is this your speech condemns you he says in verse 13 their throats are open graves their tongues practice deceit the poison of vipers is on their lips their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness Jesus himself said this in Matthew chapter 12 he said for out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks The the two-ounce beast is controlled by this, basically. In other words, your your speech is a tattletale. (laughs) It gives away what's inside your heart. And I realize that there are times when we can control this little two-ounce beast. But I also know there's not one person here who hasn't used this little tiny thing. 210 pounds I got on me. This thing weighs two ounces. And there are times it gets out of control. There are times I'm embarrassed because of the things that come out of my mouth. And guess what that tells me? Sin is in here. And it tells you the same thing. The reason why some vile things come out of your mouth and you'll say vile things to the person you love the most. Your spouse, your children, your parents. Isn't it weird? And when those things come out of your mouth, It proves the point that sin reigns within your flesh. It condemns you. It proves that you're sinful. Ephesians chapter four says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. That's how the two ounce beast is supposed to be used. James says this, this is just unbelievable. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, We curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praises and cursing. My brothers, it just shouldn't be this way. Isn't it weird? Kumbaya, my Lord. We're singing these great songs. Kumbaya. And in about 30 minutes, you'll get in your car, drive out, someone will cut you off. and... And 30 minutes ago, you were using your tongue to worship God, and now you're cursing out a brother. Weird, isn't it? And, of course, James says, hey, it's not supposed to be that way. Come on. But once again, it just proves. It proves Paul's point that we're all sinful, that we're all evil to some degree. You know why it's so difficult to use your tongue in the way that God desires? because of sin. It's because of sin. The second thing that Paul says that condemns you is this, your actions condemn you. Verse 15, your, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and, and the way of peace they do not know. Paul moves from the tongue to actions. And like the tongue, our actions are simply a result of the fact that sin rules within our souls. It's unbelievable what people will do to themselves, isn't it? It's unbelievable what sin will cause somebody to do to themselves. They'll take a needle full of just vile stuff and they'll stick it in their arms. They'll they'll snort stuff in their nose to the point where it just starts to age them so quickly they'll lose their teeth and have sores all over them. Sin will, will make somebody sell their bodies for money. Unbelievable what sin will do to you. And then think about what sin will cause a human being to do to another human being. Just pick up your paper on any given day and you can read about some of the grossest, heinous things and you think, how did a human being do that to another human being? It's sin. I say this to you all all the time. But all sin does is destroy. That's all it does. It destroys personal relationships. Everybody in this room probably has had a friend over the years, even as a believer. And sin got into it somehow, and guess what? You haven't talked to the person in a week or a month or a year. Now it's been decades had a great friend and something happened and sin. You may have apologized to that person, but because of sin in their life, you know what? Didn't mean anything to them. You did all that you could do, but sin in their life just kept them from being for, for, you know, forgiving. Could be the other way around. Sin destroys marriages. The reason why some of you have been through a divorce or two or three or four or five or maybe you're heading in that direction right now is because of sin. Sin destroys families. Been here 30 years, done this a long time. And I've watched sin get into a life of a man or a woman and they divorce and it just destroyed their family, destroyed their children. I've seen some men who literally worshiped a clear liquid. Yes, Master Jack. Yes, Master Jim. A clear liquid. And they lost their family over it. They lost their business over it because they were in bondage to sin. A clear liquid got the better of them. They loved a clear liquid more than their spouse, more than their kids, more than their job, more than their career. Crazy, the power of sin. Sin destroys churches. In my world, you know, I get magazines and I get little updates, you know, just like in your world, if you're in construction or maybe you're an attorney or maybe you're a salesperson or whatever it is you do, you know, uh, you get little updates and little things on on the world that you live in. I get updates all the time on the church and it's unbelievable to me how many churches shut down, close down, get blown apart because of sin. Not being dealt with properly. Sin destroys cities and nations and even civilizations. I, I'm watching sin run amok in our country. And it's destroying our country. It's sin. It may mask itself some other way, but it's frankly just sin. Sin is such a powerful thing. It's unbelievable. It's so powerful that even when you come to faith in Christ and God through the Holy Spirit invades your body, you become the temple of of the Holy Spirit. God's power is within you. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. Though you have that power in you, you still have a battle on your hands, don't you, Christian? That's how powerful it is. Look, Paul said, no good dwells in the flesh. This is, this is the headquarters of sin. It's all the flesh is. It just connects us to the physical. Okay, No good dwells in the flesh, just sin. That's why this doesn't get to go to heaven. You see, it's just going to fall to the ground someday, be in a pile of you know, humanity, and they're gonna put it in a pine box, stick it six, eight feet under the ground. This doesn't get to go to heaven because it's full of sin. And every one of us, whether you know the Lord or not, gotta deal with it. And it destroys, that's what it does. For some of you right now, your sin is destroying you right now as I speak and you don't even know it. I'll tell you how good sin is. You can be in bondage to it and you think you're free. That's how good sin is. It can be messing up your life, messing up your family, messing up your marriage, messing up your business, messing up your testimony and You're golden with it. You you think I'm the one who's in bondage. That's how good sin is. So Paul tells us that mankind's character is evil and therefore it condemns us and that mankind's conduct is evil and it therefore condemns us. And the final exhibit that Paul is going to present at the great summation Is this, number three, the cause of mankind's sin. And you find this in verse 18, which is found in Psalms 36. Paul says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The reason we have the mess we have today is because people just don't fear God. They don't fear you know, God's anger, they don't fear his, his wrath, they, they don't fear his, his judgment, there, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And that word fear there doesn't mean, you know, cower and you know be afraid kind of a thing, that's not what God wants. That word has to deal with, a, we have a reverential fear uh, or, uh, of, 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 of God, that we understand who he is, in relationship to who we are. Today, in the church, I think the motives were right, but it went haywire, is we've got this idea that God is our buddy. He's our buddy. And we forget that He's God. That's who He is. Growing up, the people that had the most, uh, um, the greatest impact on my life were my coaches. And one of them sitting right over there, Coach Hauser sitting right there, it was one of my baseball coaches and one of my football coaches. I, I would never, I-, I couldn't even think about going up to Coach Hauser when I was a kid or even now and going, Hey, Jerry, how are you? He's my coach, and that word coach carries with it um, some some reverential uh, feeling behind it. It would be blasphemous for me to say, hey, Jerry, how you doing? No, that's coach, how you doing, coach? And all my coaches are like that. When I see them around town, hey, coach, how are you? Hey, coach, good to see you. And when I say the word coach, it's because I respect them to an unbelievable degree. And they're to be respected. How much more is God than coach? He's to be far more honored and respected and set apart than, than a coach. And yet we've gotten to this place in our lives as the church where we just don't have much fear of God. Uh, look, I want my children not to fear me when I walk in the door. I don't want them to go hide in the closet, oh, dad's home, you know, ah, I don't want that and he doesn't want that. But I do want when I walk in the door that my kids go, that's dad. That's not my best friend. I'm not trying to be my kid's best friend. They can have a bunch of those. I'm dad, I'm a parent. We've got this whole wave that's moved through the church and even outside the church. You know, he's our friend, he's our buddy, you know, and we can just kind of treat him like a buddy. Hey, you want a beer? Let's hang out, you know? And he's God Almighty. God made sure that you couldn't miss him. Romans chapter one tells us that he's made himself known through all that he has created. He he thought, and there was the planets and the stars, and he thought, and there was a porcupine. He thought, and here you are today, basically. And he said, you can't miss my fingerprints on everything that I've made. But Romans chapter one tells us that people have come along and they've suppressed that truth. And they get to the point to where they reject it. I don't know, I don't believe in God. Then, then they have to get to the place where they got to replace it with something. I don't know, evolution, anything. There's gotta be, I gotta come up with an answer to the whole thing and so that'll, it'll be that. Two molecules got together a billion years ago and now you got an eyeball. It, whew, okay, I got it. Now I don't have to humble myself before a God. I've come up with some other answer to the whole question of life and all those kinds of things. The writer of Hebrews said this, he said it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. (laughs) He's a God of love. Let me tell you something. My kids, if they were here, would tell you that my dad loves us. My dad has demonstrated his love for us in so many different ways through the ages and stages of their life. Sometimes it had to do with money. They didn't earn a nickel. <laughs> but hey, hey, I love you, and I love you. Hey, hey, I give them things. Hey, things they don't even need. I give them. Hey, I love you. Hey, God gives us things we don't need. Hey, there you go. But they would also tell you, it's a uh, dreadful thing to fall into the hands of my dad when he's angry. I remember a time when my middle daughter was using her tongue in a way that wasn't very uh, flattering to, to Aaron. I heard a conversation down the hallway and I got up and I walked down there and I walked into her room and I said, Gracie, you won't talk to my wife like that. Are we clear? That is my wife. And I'm tired of what's coming out of your tongue right now. She had never heard that phrase, that's my wife. That might be your mother, and that is truth, but that's my wife. Don't you talk to her like that. That was quite a few years ago. I think if Aaron was here, she'd say, you know what, she got, got the message. <laughs> she, <laughs> she may think it in her mind at times, uh, but it not come out anymore. God is a God of love. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The cross proves that he loves us. But make no mistake about it, it's a dreadful thing. The writer of Hebrews is right. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He will chastise those whom he loves. Now beloved, the last two verses Verses 19 and 20 really summarize everything Paul's been building in the first three chapters. Number one, that every person is accountable to God. And we know that whatever the law says, it says to those that are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world will be accountable to God. And number two, every person is without excuse. Verse 20 says, therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, by keeping the 10 commandments. Rather through the law, through the Ten Commandments, we just became conscious of sin. And I do want to say this in the last few moments I have, okay? That God gave us the Ten Commandments for basically two reasons. The reason why God had Moses, you know, or Charlton Heston come down the mountain with the with the Ten Commandments was basically for, for two reasons. Number one, God gave the law that it would make you aware of your sin. You see, if, if uh, the law, if Stanislaus County or the Monesto PD or whoever it is, or the supervisors, I don't know who determines the laws. If they don't put a sign out here on Tully that says, you know, hey, you can only do 30 or 35, then I don't know I'm breaking the law. Someone's got to put a sign up that tells me, oh, the speed limit's 30, I'm doing 40, I'm breaking the law. So the law was given so that we would understand that we're all sinful. Oh, we may do well in some of the law. Probably, you know, I don't think anybody in here has committed murder. That's kind of the give me, I guess, of all of the 10. But let me ask you this. The first one says, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two says, Don't love anything more than you love me. Don't don't make for yourself an idol. Number three says, don't misuse the name of the Lord. Number four says, hey, I want you to set aside a day. Keep it holy. It's a day that's just for me. You rest that day. Keep it holy. It's a a special day. Number five is honor your mom and dad, you see. You get down to number 10 and number 10 is the one that Paul tends to mention and it's probably the one that most uh, people have the most trouble with and that is don't envy what other people have. In other words, be content with what God's given you and don't look at what everybody else has and say, man, I want that, man, I sure would like that. You see, here's the deal. You might keep some of the law some of the time but the bottom line is it proves that we're all sinful because nobody can keep it perfectly. (laughs) I I can do the speed limit most of the time. (laughs) But I'm well aware of the times when I go faster than I should, even if I don't get caught. It just tells me you're breaking the law. That was one of the reasons why God gave us the law, but it's a second one it says, God gave the law that it would point you towards Jesus Christ. You see, the whole point of the law was, hey, you're sinful. Yeah. You're sinful. It was never meant to make anybody right before God. It couldn't make anybody right before God. It just made, it just made us all guilty before God. Galatians chapter three says, Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. We'll be made right by our faith. The law, I'm sinful. And in the Old Testament, obviously, they didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know who the Messiah was. They didn't know who the Savior was. They were justified simply by putting their faith in God who was going to send the Messiah. And next week, Lord willing, Paul uses Abraham and King David as examples of that. Today, we know who the Messiah was. We know who to put our faith in, and that is Jesus. He was the Savior. He was the Messiah. So the law wasn't given to save anybody. It was just to simply make us all realize how goofed up we were. And it was then to say, look, you you need something greater than you to deal with your sin." So put your trust in God who has promised he's gonna send you a savior. So here's the final verdict. Mankind is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The whole world is lost. Ray Steadman, a great preacher, titled this passage, Total Wipeout. This is the, the greatest passage on the doctrine of the depravity of man that you'll find in all of scripture. This passage is nothing but bad news. That's all it is, bad news. But next week, things are going to change. We're going to get into the good news. All of a sudden, Paul is going to move from the desk of the prosecuting attorney, and he's going to move over to the desk of the defense attorney. And he's now going to lay out our hope. Things are going to change drastically next week. All of a sudden, we're going to realize that we don't live under condemnation. Romans chapter 8 says, There's now no condemnation for those who do good things. No, I didn't say that. There's no condemnation for those who are members of Big Valley Grace. No. There's no condemnation for those that become Eagle Scouts. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you really understand sin and its impact on your life and the beauty of Jesus Christ, it, it, it'll it, it enrich your worship. You'll have no problem singing to God's glory. It'll enrich that moment when you put your gift in the basket, it'll enrich that moment you'll it, it, have no problem saying, hey, I want to join the, the choir. I, I want to be a part of the orchestra. I want to be in the band. I, I want to be a, a, a mentor of children or youth. Oh, I want to work in the co- cabin. It'll just enrich your time of serving. When you really understand the dilemma we were all in and that the only solution was Christ, Wow. Psalms 130 says, Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? And the answer is no one. But you offer forgiveness. And that's where we now begin to head, starting next week if God doesn't come back. As Paul has laid out the ugly truth, Sin has impacted all of our lives. But there is forgiveness in God's Son. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth. Everybody in the venue wants you to stand up. Everybody in here, stand up. Father, thank you, Lord, for our time here today. I'm glad that Pastor Bob Irwin from Mill Creek could join us and pray for us in the beginning. I'm thankful for the choir and the orchestra. Wow, that first song was just really great. Wow. Wow. Thankful for the music. Thankful, God, for our quartet. They put a lot of time and energy and effort into that to be a blessing. Thank you, Lord, for our time of giving. Thank you, Lord, for this book I hold in my hand, the scriptures. Because there's a lot of really ugly truth in there. (laughs) Just ugly, ugly truth. We've looked at it for three months now the ugly truth of humanity. But the good news is things change next week. And what changes is you, God, your son. There's now no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. I am in Christ Jesus, so sin has no impact on my life. What a beautiful thing, God. Give us a great afternoon and I pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Hey, Lord bless you, okay, live for Christ.